Welcome, dear friends, family, and all who have traveled to be part of this special day as we join Isaac and Sarah in the sacred bonds of marriage. And a special thanks to our beloved Homestead community for your outpouring of gifts and love service to make this day possible and beautiful. Isaac, I asked them to sing that first song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, in honor of your dad, who always loved that song. Though he isn't with us here physically today, his vibrant spirit and legacy lives on in you. And I know he'd be thrilled at your choice for a wife. I can just hear him exclaiming, I really like her. <laughs> and I have every confidence that you will use the gifts God has given you to follow in your dad's faithful footsteps and make him proud. Sarah, we have immensely enjoyed getting to know you better over the last months as you've plunged right into our family, bringing your sparkle and bright countenance. You've cheerfully shared your many gifts and talents with our community, such as leather crafting and serving as a prep cook at the cafe, and it has endeared you to all. A wedding is always an incredibly joyous occasion. This is partly because there is such apparent promise and potential in the creation of something new. And perhaps even subconsciously, we realize how truly amazing and humanly unexplainable it is that two people could be so insane as to commit to living with, struggling together with, cherishing, serving, and loving each other for the rest of their lives. Deep within, our hearts leap to be a witness to such a phenomenon, and we rejoice at this divine experience. We also know that along with great promise and joy, life's path inevitably brings disappointment, pain, stress, and grief. At a wedding, we witness a bond being formed that has proven the ability to survive and even thrive against the storms of life. And we thrill at the prospect that evil and the seeming unfairness of life might once again be beaten at its own game, that love has another chance to triumph. Now, I can guarantee that shortly we will continue rejoicing mightily, but if you allow, I would like to briefly share two sobering studies I've recently encountered. These include some rather depressing statistics that I'd like to touch on, along with a question I've puzzled over since reading them. First, in May of this year, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an urgent health advisory warning of a new epidemic, an epidemic of loneliness. According to his report, most Americans are chronically lonely, dramatically affecting their physical health and significantly contributing to the political polarization and social unrest currently afflicting the nation. Here are a few statistics from his report. Loneliness increases the risk for premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. It is associated with a 29% increased risk of heart disease, 32% increased risk of stroke, with increased risk for anxiety, depression, dementia, and may even increase susceptibility to viruses and respiratory illness. After troubling over this for the past several months, I came across several articles just a few weeks ago referring to a recent study on the state of marriage and divorce in this country. Now, I'm sure we've all seen the depressing statistics on the current failure rate of marriages today, but this is not what stood out to me. I was surprised 
as were the study's authors, that less than 5% of divorcees felt that absolutely nothing could have saved their marriage. In other words, over 95% of people who had gone through a divorce said that they thought that there was some way that their marriage could have been saved. The study then asked respondents to list the top things that, had they been different, could have saved their marriage. Now, I assume that top issues would be related to the handling of finances, how to deal with conflict, or how to raise their family. But none of these even made the top five. The number one issue for 63% of the respondents was wishing they better understood the meaning of commitment before marrying. I was quite disturbed by this as I considered how many people felt their marriages could have been saved with an answer to one profound question. I began to puzzle over this and ask myself, what would I tell someone about the meaning of commitment that could truly help them? And is there some connection between this lack of understanding of relational commitment and this epidemic of loneliness? Let's start with a brief examination of this epidemic of loneliness. The pain of loneliness is as real as hunger pangs and the discomfort of thirst. These are God-given feedback loops necessary in our fallen world, telling us that something essential for our life and well-being is lacking. Through brain imaging technology, neuroscientists have shown that just as parts of the brain let us know when we're hungry or signal our need for sleep, there are parts of the brain dedicated to our need for relationship, friendship, and love. In the words of one neuroscientist, we are hardwired for connection. When we are deprived of the emotional need for relational connection, it quite literally makes us sick and starts a downward spiral that can be difficult to pull out of. Most would say that people struggling with loneliness and depression need to find stronger relationships and a better support network, and this is true. But psychologists, neuroscientists, and other researchers have recently been proving a surprising solution with significantly higher results. Renowned neuroscientist Dr. Stephanie Cassiopo states, for years, people thought the best thing you could do for a lonely person is to give them support. Actually, we found that it's about receiving and also giving back. So the best thing you can do for someone who is lonely is not to give them help, but to ask them for help. Study after study has backed this up, that while offering support to a lonely person helps to a degree, significantly greater results occur when that lonely person is asked by someone else for advice or for help. Amazingly, this phenomenon holds not only for psychological and emotional health issues, but also for many physical health issues, such as MS. The following is a quote from a medical school research article. Carolyn Schwartz, a research professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, didn't start out looking at the value of helping others. Instead, she simply wanted to see if receiving monthly peer support phone calls from fellow multiple sclerosis sufferers would benefit others with the disease. But over time, a surprising trend emerged. While those receiving support appeared to gain some mild benefit, the real beneficiaries were those lending a supportive ear. In fact, those who offered support experienced dramatic improvements in their quality of life, several times more so than those they were helping. Of course, Jesus himself declared, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Looking deeper into this loneliness epidemic, sociologists such as Robert Putnam, among others, often point to the middle of the last century as the start of this decline. 
They highlight the prominent ideas of psychologists in the 1940s and 50s, such as Abraham Maslow's theory of a hierarchy of needs, putting self-actualization at the top of his pyramid as being at least partially responsible for this downward trend. From that point, they see a cultural change in our national psyche from finding purpose and meaning in our community, in our family, in clubs and societies we were members of, to seeking purpose and meaning in personal growth, self-improvement, or becoming a better you. In short, a dramatic shift began happening across our entire culture, turning our perspective on the meaning of life, our jobs, our relationships, and even our religion from outward to inward. We shifted from a collective or communal mindset to an individualistic mindset, from a how can my life positively affect others viewpoint to how can my relationships help me become a better me viewpoint. This cultural trend is generally undisputed by sociologists and historians, even leading to several generations in the past 50 years being referred to as the me generation. Where does this all leave us today, standing at this altar? How do we answer the question so many are asking, what is the meaning of commitment? Commitment, while having the same binding effects as a contract, is not simply a contract. A contract states, I'll do this, if you'll do that. But the very etymology of the word commitment gives us a clearer picture. It comes from two Latin words, com, which means together, and matere, which is where we get our English word mission. So commitment inherently implies that the parties involved are joining in the same mission for the same purpose, not simply a quid pro quo agreement. What is this mission we are committing to in marriage? Is it to better ourselves individually? Is it simply to feel loved? Is it to fulfill our personal dreams? While all the above do come true in a loving marriage, I submit that we must commit to some common mission that stands above and outside our individual selves. I further submit that this mission is summed up in what the ancient Jewish community understood as the two greatest commandments. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they considered the second one to be exactly the same as the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle John records Jesus' words, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. John also tells us in his epistle that God is love. So, if the very hands and word of the God who is love created us and spoke into existence the world all around us, I believe we will find true fulfillment, meaning, and purpose only by learning to completely surrender ourselves to true self-sacrificial love in the same way Jesus did for us. Immediately following the creation of man and giving him instructions in the garden, the next words recorded from God's mouth were, it is not good for man to be alone. And then God fashioned Adam's wife out of his own flesh. So, from the very beginning, in a very real way, we are indeed each a part of one another, one piece of all mankind. In the words of the famous poem, no man is an island entire of itself. The commitment of marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It is a 100-100 proposition. Our modern culture has been sold a false premise, 
Look out first for yourself and become who you were meant to be, and then find the relationships that will support you in your purpose. This mindset has ended in millions of little lonely islands separated by oceans of fear, mistrust, and anxiety. God's plan flips this equation on its head. He created us with an innate need for connection that is best met by reaching out and offering love service to someone else. As we seek first not to be consoled, but to console, we ourselves will find deep comfort. As we seek first not to be understood, but to understand, we ourselves will find peace with all. And as we seek first not to be loved, but to love, we ourselves will be greatly cherished. This self-sacrificial love offers us the chance to build a bridge between all the lonely islands, to drain the swamps surrounding them, start filling in the chasms, and recreate the continent that we were all meant to be. Ecclesiastes tells us that two is better than one, and that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. As we fit our individual lives into the concentric circles of our marriage, our family, and our community, then one marriage at a time, one commitment at a time, one helping hand at a time, the ripples of our choices will start to reverse the culture of loneliness and isolation all around us. So, what does the marriage commitment mean? It means you before me. It means loving another as myself. It means whatever it takes. It means loving even when it hurts. It means struggling together towards one goal. It means love, God's love. The words I have to say and it will be simple but they're true. Until we give our love there's nothing more that we Have your eyes really seen? 
is what we were placed on this earth for. Love is why everyone is here with you tonight. Love is why you two are standing here before this altar. In closing, I want to share a very brief story. Isaac, you and I both love spreadsheets. And Sarah, with your heritage of scientific intelligence, I imagine you've got similar attachments. But consider this story. About 50 years ago, an ambitious young Jewish man studied psychology at the C.G. Jung Institute in Switzerland. While there, he rented a small farmhouse in the countryside nestled against the Swiss Alps. He describes a summer day when he was helping out on the farm. The cowbells on the brown Swiss cows were ringing across the meadows, and great cumulus clouds were mounting above the Alps, casting shadows across the swaying fields of dandelion flowers. He leaned on his pitchfork and looked across at the lake below him, reflecting the deep blue sky. As he absorbed this stunning beauty all around him, he said it suddenly felt like the heavens opened, and unexpectedly, he felt the presence of God. He says that before that moment, he had always hoped that there was a God, but had no idea if it was true. From that visceral experience on, he knew that, though he could not rationally prove it, he could never again doubt the existence of God. Two years later, at 24, he was invited to give a prestigious lecture at Harvard. This was an incredible achievement for someone his age, and he set out to prove himself. He worked on his lecture notes for an entire year, laying them out on a special grid paper. As the date for the presentation approached, he felt confident that his notes were in superb condition, and in them, he had impressively developed a theory for everything. Three nights before he left for Harvard, he had a dream. In his dream, he was back on the farm in Switzerland on his hands and knees in the middle of the field of dandelions. Only this time, the dandelions were laid out on a grid, just like his lecture notes. He was eating the dandelions down to the root, one at a time, methodically, until he suddenly bumped up against a massive object. He began to peer up, attempting to ascertain what this obstacle was. He strained his eyes as he tried to find the contours of it, but though it was not a mountain, it rose above the mountains, higher than the Alps. It kept going up, up, and up until it pierced the tops of the clouds. As he peered above the towering cumulus clouds, he suddenly could tell he was looking at the edge of a toenail. With a start, he realized that the object he had bumped against was a giant toe. Could it be the toe of God? 
He woke himself up laughing at the silliness that he could lay out a theory of everything on a piece of graph paper when he couldn't even discern the big toe of a reality beyond his comprehension. Isaac and Sarah, love can't fit on a graph paper. Human relationships can't be organized on a spreadsheet. The needs of another can't be comprehended by principles or careful deductions. It simply comes by humbling yourselves to realize that life is a lot bigger than you could ever imagine, that your partner is an entire universe you will spend a lifetime learning, and that God and his purpose are more significant than you can possibly conceive. And if you submit yourselves to this perspective, you will also find love more rewarding than you could ever fathom. (laughs) 